Welcome back, everyone. I'm calling this podcast Waste Not, and I would, I'm going to attempt to accomplish two things. Um, first, I'm going to perhaps give the world's quickest and most simplified uh, history of Western philosophy, but what I would like to do is try to tease out one of the main themes that runs through it all and, and show how that um, is very applicable to the, the issues that I've been, been dealing with. And then the second part, um, I would like to um, attempt to, to deal with one more feedback loop. And it is one that I have omitted from my other podcasts until now. Um, eh, very deliberately, because one, I think it's very important, and I wanted to spend a little more time on it, and two, because it is a very, um, well, it's in a sense swimming a very against a very strong current of cultural norms, and so I wanted to give it a, enough time to try to give it a full argument um, without getting completely dismissed right from the beginning. So... I remember decades ago when I was in middle school and high school, and for me, history back then was was really more of a chore. And it may have been that I didn't have the best teachers, but I think also a big part of it was what was my personality. And and you know, all history is has some sort of narrative, and the narrative that you know I was. Uh, following through the textbooks was always a, a political one or of wars or who was dominating when or who was conquering when and um, vaguely interesting to me but it was like dates and names um, which don't come naturally to me um, it was really you know I did what I needed to do to get my A but it was really you know I had to struggle and I had to memorize all these dates and names but when I got to college um, and then I declared a philosophy major. I did it a little bit reluctantly because I knew that at the very center of the whole major was this course called History of Philosophy. And this was very serious. Um, it was huge. It was like a four-hour course um, for a whole year, for two semesters. So it was kind of like the centerpiece and center block of of everything else um, just kind of dominated your, your your whole year. And I went into it with some trepidation, thinking, oh my goodness, I'm just going to have to memorize dates and names. And um, But it turns out that I have the kind of personality that if you are giving me a narrative, a historical narrative of how people think and why that uh, has led to many of our actions and what we have done historically, it turns out that I'm very interested and I, I track very easily. And um, it was much easier for me. Um, but part of it, too, was I had a fantastic teacher. It was this guy who had come over from Britain uh, decades and decades ago. He had been teaching. I mean, he was near retirement. This was one of his last years, I think maybe his last year to teach. And he was down to just this one course and he had been teaching for 40, 50 years. But he, he taught this whole course and he pretty much taught it without notes. It was pretty impressive, the depth and breadth of his knowledge, but um, can still remember his voice. Isms, ists, and ismists. Um, but he definitely... Um, 
made it very much alive, at least to me and my personality. So it was a good fit for me. Um, so he, unfortunately, is going to roll over in his grave as I try to simplify um, uh, <laughs> eight hours of college credits into uh, a tiny, teeny little podcast here. But let's see if we can succeed in teasing out what we what we need for um, for the subject at hand. So... Of course, if you're dealing with philosophy and you're starting at the beginning, you have to contend with the Greek, um, ancient Greek philosophers. And the main guy there, king of the ancient Greek philosopher, was Plato. And somewhat interestingly, he was trying, he, he came out of a time when the philosophers of his time were really wrestling with what was the really essence of the world. They were all trying to figure out. Uh, what was you know how what, how the world ticked and what was behind things and so you had one side and one faction saying that the world was all about being and then you had another faction saying no it's about change and becoming and so he was doing a, a synthesis and so he said yeah yeah sure we live in this material world and things are always changing he gave his famous um, you know, he provides us with this famous uh, metaphor of, you know, we see, and we're in a cave and we see shadows of the real thing. Um, but what's somewhat interesting is that he he wanted to play both sides and he wanted to kind of um, be able to make a whole out of the two sides. And um, so he said, yeah, we, we live in the material world, but there's this other world, the world of the mind, world of the spirit, the noose, and it's um, where you find the forms. And so in this upper world were, was everything of, of that was eternal and it was you know, of being and it didn't change. And so he would talk about a horse and, uh, you know, up in this, this, the realm of the mind and the forms up in this realm, there was, there was horse, the noun of, with capital H horse. And then all horses down here in the material world, um, they participated is how he puts it or how it was translated. They participate in the form of horse up there. And so a horse is only as good as much as it is, um, approaching the perfectness and the perfection of horse capital H up in up in the world of the noose and so in a sense as he was trying to assimilate two different worldviews he ended up somewhat uh, being responsible for in a sense rendering our world into two and so we end up with um, we end up with the world of our experience and of change and then we have this this other world of the mind of the spirit and and in that other world was as well you have the forms of not just nouns but you would have the forms of all your virtues and so you know you'd have capital l for love and you would have uh, you know justice and um and, and on and on and um this was and it was only in so much as that we acted uh, and participated in an approach to the perfection of these things that we lived a good life but in in rendering the world into two, you can kind of see in retrospect that much of Western philosophy was about um, following one way or another, or in emphasizing, I should say, one realm or the other. So one is the mind, and the other is our experience. And so my professor, 
from very early on, possibly even the first lecture, I don't know, he would go up to this big board, and I don't even remember if it was chalk or dry eraser, I think we might have been new technology at that time, and we had a big, huge dry eraser board, he would just, huge board, and he would draw this massive X, and that was to represent the pattern of the history of thought. And these two lines... One was the line of rationality, and one that emphasized the mind, and that the world of the objective, and the world of um, of of that which was was always true, and 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 what could be you know abstraction, whatnot, um, and that was championed by the rationalist, and then the other line was was emphasizing and said, no, we, we understand the world through our experience. And so um, that was the existentialist. And so you have right in the middle of that X, um, you have Kant. And again, he was trying to um, synthesize the two traditions. And so he has his mental constructs. And so he had the two, the two worlds of of, of noumena and phenomena. So of noumena is of, of the mind and the a priori, that which just is as it is. And then you have the world of phenomena, of experience, of senses, of taste and feel. And uh, so most most all philosophers, in a sense, can be, uh, can be sort of placed on this line that how are they dealing with these two realms? How are they dealing with this sort of dichotomy and what's going on? So to give a quick example of of kind of where those two sides fall, um, you have Descartes uh, as, this, as the rationalist. So here is this philosopher who, you know, they're always doing these crazy thought experiments, and he was like, well, I, my senses are fooled. I've often had my senses fooled. So really I'm doubting everything. So if I doubt everything, then um, is there anything left that I can I can know for sure, and he goes through this lengthy um, process and mental exercises, and he says, in the end, the only thing that I really know is that I think, and so I, you know, because I think, therefore I am, and so here was a champion of of the rationalist one who said, well, the ultimate and the most fundamental as you go down is the mind and the fact that the brain works and that you think and you have thoughts. And that's that's the true foundation of who we are and everything builds out from there. So if, um, if Plato had rendered the world in two, here was Descartes and he kind of um, took a big giant crowbar into that chasm and levered it wide open, which is why we often use the phrase um, Cartesian dualism. So you have um, the separation between subject and object. You have the separation between romantic and, and classic or dynamic and static or form and matter, form and content. Um, so he, he was that's a classic example of 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 rationalist and um very much still alive today the enlightenment was definitely based on that um but even today um this so descartes had this um he did a quick mental exercise or, or metaphor. He says, you know, we, I could have this this devil that was just putting images in my head and basically it could be fooling me that I even have a body, right? So this idea of just like this sort of 
disembodied brain that's just floating around and it hallucinates and that's what our body is so that there's so much separation between mind and body that you could actually be fooled and you might not even have a body and so this is definitely still alive and well um it's definitely the basis of you know like badass movies sci-fi movies like the matrix or so where um, everyone who hasn't been enlightened or so to speak or hasn't taken the red pill is just plugged into these sort of um these cocoons you know and their batteries for the machines and stuff and and even recently i i heard um neil degrasse tyson just not too long ago he he you know great mind there and he says yeah you know it's very high probability that we are in a simulation and that uh, we are just living out the virtual um, simulation of a super AI, super artificial intelligence. So that idea of the mind and the mind being dominant and uh, and separate so much that we might not even know that our body might be in complete illusion is still very much a part of our culture and very much um, dominant in a lot of thought. So the other side of that would be the existentialist. And um, the king of ex- existentialists was Kierkegaard. And um, I I did a whole course on Kierkegaard and did my senior paper. And I, I really uh, <laughs> yeah, quickly let you know where I fall on the, on the, on the side of this um, debate. But he was the existentialist. And he um, – um, now let me back up a little bit because it can be a, a little bit confusing because um, typically you're – your, your your religious is definitely um, uh, pl- platonic in that sense of that they have two worlds and there's the one the world of the of the mind and then there's the world of you know of spirit and that's what informs what things you know should be down in the material world and so typically um, and uh, particularly the monotheistic um, religions um, you have this setup um, this metaphysical setup um, so in the uh, the Jewish Old Testament, right? I mean, you can't get any more um, obvious or um, of of this metaphor with with God hands down stone tablets that He's written on the very laws of how you should live, and it's it comes down from above and is given into the hands of us, and these are the laws and, and what we should what we should follow. So. Um, definitely, and then our morality is 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 considered good in so much as we follow these laws that have been given down from above. And the if you take Islam, definitely there's still that exact same trajectory of of, of how we know how to live, right? So if you're a really conservative Muslim, you don't even think that the Quran should be translated into other languages because the Quran is t- to be actually considered the very thoughts of God, and um, so. You know, when Muhammad was writing these down in Arabic, I guess, then um, these were the very thoughts of God. And so really the, the, the human part of that's really not – he was just the vessel. And so the morality and the norms and what you have, the laws and what should be it comes down from above. And um, we live it out and we're good in so much as we match up to those. Um, Christianity is maybe a little bit, we have a little bit more 
um, wiggle room. And maybe that is because that's tradition I grew up in, but, um, certainly you have predominantly, um, that's the trajectory of things that, you know, that we know that, you know, we follow the 10 commandments as well. And we have, you know, given from God of above and the Bible in many, many more conservative circles, you know, the Bible is inerrant or infallible or it has authority. We use all these different language, but it's, um, most of the time, many Christians and particularly conservative Christians that the Bible is, <clears throat> is just pretty much given to us from God, and we'll know what to do if we read that. Um, but there certainly are other traditions, and, and Christ himself was kind of a maverick. You know, he was sort of this crazy Jew running around and breaking the Sabbath and breaking laws and, and trying to sort of provoke the authorities back then and, and say, hey, you know, the the man was made for the law or for the Sabbath, and uh, I mean, Sabbath was made for man and not man for Sabbath. And it's kind of turning things on his head. So there's definitely an argument there about the spirit of the law versus the actual law. And um, but regardless, the 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 vast um, the vast majority of of historically, we have the same trajectory of of God from above, um, even. Even Christ himself, you know, he was the Word became flesh, and he was the Word, the capital W. He was basically a form. He was the Logos, and he came down and uh, incarnated himself into this world, this phenomenal world, this world of material, and uh, then showed us how to live and, and <clears throat> go on from there. So we definitely have the religions tend to side on the um, – on the the rationalist side however this was all in preamble to get to kierkegaard because he was a christian and he was a theologian he was from denmark but however he said yeah sure there's god and there's that whole thing but we're human and we experience the world um through our senses and when, and that's what we've got and um our mind is great but that's not really it doesn't flow top down he actually argued that we flow bottom up and so his language was much more of emergence and he was known for his the phrase leap of faith that's always associated with kierkegaard and people assume that it's a religious thing but it wasn't really it was much much more than that it was a more uh, epistemological term so epistemology would be the how do you know things and so he observed he had a very different approach than like descartes so he's like you know we're we as kids we we get all sorts of information into us and we we see things and we uh, start creating these worldviews and we think we understand the world and we've got this framework and then we start getting more data in and then we get to this point where this big contradiction the data is contradicting our you know our worldview and a healthy individual when you you are you know have this paradox and you have this confrontation then there has to be this really a dying to the old old ways of thinking and you have to take this leap of faith to a new and a broader understanding that definitely encompasses more data encompasses all the old data as well it's not like you're throwing away the old stuff but it's a broad like so he he in a sense broader and bigger concentric circles and so this is the language of of gestalt this is the language of emergence this is the language of of you know 
uh, symbiotic um, emerging systems, uh, much of the language that I use when I talk about ecology. So those would be two examples, maybe maybe champions of um, the the different sides, the different schools of thought of, of one that places the emphasis on the mind as being more fundamental, and the other Kierkegaard placing the emphasis on our experience and that being more fundamental. And you see a trajectory of of top down versus bottom up. And a couple other things I'd like to point out that are going to um, play into this whole uh, dichotomy and what we emphasize, and that would be some of the influences on um, of the Greeks onto Christianity, because I, I think our culture here in America is very heavily influenced by, by Christianity, and Christianity was very heavily influenced by the Greek. And so you have in Plato... He wasn't. He didn't dwell a lot on this, but he did have this problem he had to deal with in his um, in his metaphysics, which metaphysics is just how you see the world and and how things are set up. And so, um, so, so when he had set things up, the the the, the forms in that which exists in the um, in the world of of. Of, of eternal and being and and pure, right? Like how does how does creation happen, which is a world of change? And in a sense, um, you can't be tainted, or you can't, you know, if if you're if you're everlasting or you're constant, you know, you can't be tainted by change. And so he, it was a question put to him, um, and he had to deal with it. And he ends up having three iterations of, of of God. Well, first I should say that of the forms, um, Plato had this idea that there was the form of forms. And so that plays really easily into, um, as you can see, very um, very easily adapted into what the religions would consider God. So him, he had a form of forms, and all forms were only perfect in so much as they, you know, participated in the form of forms, right? But this form of forms couldn't be the creator, or he couldn't be tainted by the world, you know, the material world. So he has like three iterations, or two iterations, I should say. So, um, Plato doesn't spend a lot of time on it, but he does talk about the world, world soul, and then the demiurge, and then these are what can actually begin to interact with, with the world um, that we live in. Um, and you have a very similar um, thing going on with Christ being incarnate. And there's no, there's no doubt. At least in my professor's mind, there was no doubt that um, that this. Uh, this sort of three uh, or two iterations of the form made, making three, so to speak, was the precursor of of Christian um, tr the doctrine of Trinity. And so, but as you can already hear in my language, um, as soon as you make one world um, uh, more important or hierarchical to the other, um, it didn't take any time at all for one world not just to be more dominant and hacker, but one world to be good and one world to be evil. So before you knew it, there was this um, movement uh, in the Greek for of Gnosticism, Gnosticism, I guess. And so the Gnostics 
we um, believe that knowledge was of utmost importance, and they they claim to have secret knowledge. You know, so they had either the secret knowledge of of politics and how to rule, or they had the secret knowledge of of God or whatnot. And um, but more importantly, they went as far as to vilify the, the material world, so that flesh was actually evil. And um, this was definitely taken up into Christianity, and you see it heavily in, in Paul's writings. And so he really struggles with this in many of his um, of his writings. He's he's coming ever so close. He comes like a hairbreadth away from really saying that the spirit is good and that the flesh is is evil. Um, he, you know, Christ, Christians will tend to to argue that he didn't say it because you have horrible repercussions if 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 flesh becomes actually evil. But the 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 farthest he got at one point was like, look, if you, he says, you know, if you're burning with lust and you just you're gonna go around and you're gonna, you know, be having sex out of wedlock and having kids, whatever, that's obviously bad. So if you can't help yourself, then um, you know you should get married. But um, but it's much better if if you if you don't have to deal with those desires and then you just keep yourself um, single and you can devote your time to God and and that's just much more important. So he um, all but says that you know the 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 world of the spirit and the world of the mind and all this and morality and ethics that that's not only detached from the body and that's only separate but that it's it's, it's much more important. So the other stuff may be beneficial. Um, I mean, it may be permissible, but it's not beneficial. Um, and, and I think a lot of this is um, probably much of what was at the root of why you, historically you see a lot of dysfunction of, of the church um, with, with sexuality and whatnot. But not just the church. Our culture in general has this problem with the flesh. Um, and interestingly, I, I pushed this a little further because... Um, I think that what we do is that we champion the mind, and we have we have lost touch. Part of part of the um, fallout of when you emphasize the mind and the body is maybe not outright evil, but just not important, is that you we've lost our place, and that goes back to what I've talked about of the we we don't even know how to interact with nature anymore. The fact that we have to even figure out how to interact with nature, we've rendered ourselves apart, and so. This is kind of the segue into my, my next um, section, but I just want to reemphasize just that, you know, here we are and we, we're, you know, we're, we're dealing with some pretty serious issues. Um, and I, you know, for me, I, one of the biggest issues I think is definitely climate change. And here we are and we, everyone's dealing about, you know, temperatures rising and carbon um, increasing in the atmosphere. And so our, our tendency as culture, as, as Western culture, is, is to figure out solutions of the mind. And right along with that, it's, it's solutions of the mind are not of the body, right? They're the solutions are in involved. Either we come up with um, laws or we come up with, um, 
you know, we're gonna we're gonna regulate this and we're gonna cut our emissions and we're gonna you know plan to do this. And so that's one way. Or we're gonna um, we come up with technology. So like we get all excited because we we figure some scientist is gonna figure out how to like spray some material into the sky that's gonna reflect the sun back, you know, this all this crazy linear thinking like, oh we have too much heat, we have too much carbon, therefore we're gonna like, you know, we're gonna spray this here or we're gonna, you know, we're gonna mechanically do something here and like technology is gonna save us. And um I think this is a, a direct result of of what has won out um historically, uh philosophically, um, and that the mind is is the most important. And this is gonna bring me this would be the segue to my next section. My next section is about about us as human beings and, and a feedback loop. And I part of me really hopes that a lot of people saw this gaping hole in um my podcast earlier and what I was avoiding because well, let me let me try to put it this way. So here we have, you know, we we have humans that you know say whatever hundreds of thousands of years ago we were we we're not that big on the planet. You know, we were definitely we had this mind and we were crazy smart and we were affecting things um, disproportionately from you know maybe other animals. Um, and here we've grown into this massive species, this massive race, and. Now we're we're not just a nobody growing onto the stage. We are like dominant in, in more ways than one. But I want to focus on the actual physical, right? So the actual, you know, I could even say the actual flesh. So here we are, and now we're at 7 billion or whatever the number is of our population. And just the sheer biomass, we're talking about just the sheer biomass. I mean, we outdo any other mammal, and I guess there's... I, I looked it up quickly and I was like, okay, there's some insects that have a lot more uh, weight than we do, biomass than we do, and there's krill and there's like bacteria and whatnot. But I mean, we're a serious contender. We are like a huge, a huge chunk of, of the biomass of on this planet. And and to, to try to get that in perspective, you know, like what that means and what we're looking for in solutions. So here we are and we're this enormous uh, species with all this biomass and everyone who's in like a civilized in a civilized country or whatever they would dream of doing anything else besides shitting in the drinking water and so here we have an unbelievable amount of biomass that just gets flushed down literally flushed down the toilet and it goes into our waterways and these and this manure and this goes into waste management plants where we treat it and we put these crazy chemicals on it and we try to render it as neutral as possible and then in plenty of times we're just not good enough with that and like if you talk about New York they have this whole sewage system that's linked to the to the water runoff during a storm so then they have to open up the you know the gates so that you don't the municipalities the water treatment places don't get overrun so that goes up into the ocean so much of what we do is we not only are are flushing it down the system but we're concentrating all our manure into extraordinarily concentrations that are absolutely toxic to whatever wherever it ends up 
And so if we go back to what I was talking about, feedback loops, and if we talk about that cow who's on on her pasture and she's in communication constantly, an essential piece of that communication was to was her excrement and all that bacteria um you know over half the manure is bacteria and it's going out into the field and it's it's providing nutrients and as that bacteria um is eating other things or dies itself i mean suddenly all these new um, nutrients are available to the plants and then the whole cycle can go on and you can go on to be sequestering carbon you can go on to be you know gaining growing soil you can go on to to keeping water and um into your soil and all those good things that we talked about with the cow so now here we are as a species and uh, we don't do any of that so we, we, we've cut off this feedback loop. So we have this resource that, um, in a sense, if we were one of those feedback loops that was ameliorating the place and ameliorating the planet, then you know we would be building soil and fertility as we go. But we don't. Um, be, well, mostly because we have a, of a history of concentrating it in these big cities, and then you know it, it ended up historically getting piled up into concentrations that were just horrendous and made, you know, living conditions next to impossible. So, like to try to give an alternative to that. And I am by no means am original here. Um, there's a great book by Joseph Jenkins, and it's called The Humaner Handbook. And um, basically, it's a book about compost. It just happens to be that the, um, the material used in the compost is our own manure. And, you know, I mean, we hear just recently, a couple months ago, there was, uh, there was an article in the New York Times about how compost was um, a fantastic way to sequester carbon in the soil, and it was getting plants to, you know, sequester more carbon, and it was just a fantastic way, and, you know, here we could, you know, and that was fantastic. I was really happy to read that. Um, but to me, in my mind... Uh, you know, there were, well, there were some critics to that and they were saying, well, you know, that's a lot of work and that's like, we, you know, among the criticisms of it was just like, it takes a lot of energy to make this compost and where you're going to get all this fuel and whatever. And here we have <laughs> every day we have, um, you know, we can participate on, on the, on the, you know, the intake. We participate in one system or another by eating. Well, we can participate with one system and another as it comes out the other end. So in the Human Era Handbook, and this is what we've done for years and years and years, is basically you have to have enough carbon. Um, I think it's like 30 carbon molecules to one nitrogen. And that um, if you make that mix, that's the perfect mix for, um, for compost. And basically what ends up happening uh, is that you... Um, you negate the smell. So you don't have to really, one of the things that people, when they come and they come to our house, they are just, and it's new, it's a new concept to them. They just have a really hard time believing how the smell is completely neutralized. And we live in an area where we're, we're blessed with just a lot of sawmills. So we have uh, sawdust and that's our source of carbon. Now it can be pretty much anything, but that's a fantastic one. And we oftentimes can get raw um, shavings or, or, or sawdust as they call it, which are smarter, smaller parts particles and um, very biologically active and whatnot. So basically, uh, we do our business in a five-gallon bucket, but it's in this box with a nice toilet lid and um, 
And we collect it that way. And then when we have enough buckets, we get them together. We take them out and we make a, a bin. Uh, we use pallets. So that's going to be four by four approximately. And we use a lot of hay because we're not going to turn this, right? That was another criticism of compost. Oh, you got to keep turning it and whatnot. But if you do it right and you add enough hay, which is allowing enough oxygen to be trapped in there, there's this beautiful thing that happens. And again, we're talking about systems that are just latent there in the ec ecology and, and they're just waiting to happen in, in, in unbelievable, beautiful systems that are synergistic with each other. So you stick a pile of this manure and it's got all the yearning as well. So you have high nitrogen and you have all this fecal matter and it's got all kinds of bacteria in it and everything and you have it with sawdust so that it's stable. So you have that's your carbon. And then you put it in this in this bin and you have a lot of hay and you make you do a layer of, of the humanure and you do a layer of the hay and then we might do maybe three layers because we have a ton of people here and so we have to do it at least once a week here and we have many buckets so we do you know we'll do a layer you know a few inches thick and then we put a big layer of hay and then another few uh, layer of of the humanure and what happens is compost is this beautiful thing and um, the bacteria get going and they just start munching and, and they're digesting and doing what they do to all this all this material so by the way we also have you know all our kitchen scraps and all our other compost anything that's organic and you know whether it's like um, even if you happen to use a paper towel or you happen to use a Kleenex that all goes and that's all going to go back that's extra, extra carbon there um, you know heck you throw the toilet paper you know the the roll at the end you throw that in there too but all our kitchen scraps uh, scraps go in there and it okay so it all goes into the into the bin and then the the bacteria get going and they just start eating all the stuff well all that activity actually starts creating heat and then there's these these microbes and these bacteria just hanging around and they're called thermophiliac um, which basically means they love heat and so it is amazing you could pretty much set your thermometer to the different thresholds of what's going on so um, these guys will bring it up to like 111 if I remember right I used to check this all the time with my thermometer because I wanted to make sure I was doing it right um, and uh, it, it goes up the activity goes up it heats up 111 boom 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 and it's there for a while but then enough heat is created at, at that level, and then one all of a sudden, I don't know what it is, but the, a threshold is, is, is crossed, a Kierkegaardian leap goes on, a gestalt happens, and then suddenly you, you go to this next level, and uh, even more, uh, they, the heat-loving bacteria, that they like it even hotter. And they take it up to 120, ooh, I'm going to forget, 124 or something up there. Um, and there is another level up there, but we never really shoot for anything higher than that, because we know that if we if it's at 124 the beauty of that is that you have that at three days there and it's going to kill all pathogens but it's not so hot that it's going to kill all the bacteria and all the good stuff so that gets done it heats up it does its thing it might be there um have heated up for a good while but um in that pile maybe you know we might put put more and more as it goes until we've completely filled that bin up and it's on several times on several occasions has heated up done its thing and then we let it sit for a year and there's all this whole ecosystem that comes in you know whether it's worms or beetles or nematodes or bacteria or microbes or everything you can think of comes in and just takes what's now 
now completely neutralized and it's in a really uh, available form and they turn it to an even better form. So, I mean, we can dig in there. If you go in there a few months later, there's no smell and there's just covered in red worms and they're doing their thing and they're just turning it into beautiful, beautiful soil. And so here we have an answer and if... Um, you know, here we are. You're basically taking carbon and um, and you're putting it back into the soil. And you're making at the same time you're you're making a pr something that's uh, nutrients that are totally available to, to grow plants. Now we're very careful. You know, we don't want to put that on anything we would ever sell. So we just actually put our human urine. <laughs> we quote unquote waste it in our flower beds because we don't. You know, we wouldn't want anyone to go. Oh my God, they. They eat, you know, from soil, from the poop. But um, it would, you know, if we could get to the point where we weren't utterly scared of all this, um, of our bodies, and we weren't scared of the flesh, and we didn't demonize it, we could actually look for solutions for these global problems right from our body. So we can look for these solutions and participate in systems from eating, but then we could also do it on, on the other side of things. And so that was basically the feedback loop that I was very reluctant to to address. But I do think that if if we're going to try to talk about being connected and reconnect with nature and pretty much figure out who we are and what we're doing and, and find a, a place, that it has to happen on, on, at that end of things as well. And that, um, you know, I know it's much easier for us. We're out in the country and we have access to sawdust. But... Um, I just I don't know how you could ever address global problems if we never address the fact that we are a species that's growing and we're just only getting more and more um, <clears throat> multiplying more and more until we have billions and billions and then if we con continue to consider every our output of our feedback loop as waste and as something that we have to spend energy on instead of using it as something that could build and regenerate the ecology and the environment then I just have a hard time seeing how we're going to ever come up with solutions, um, especially mechanical ones. I just, um, that's where I, I fall on things. And I just, I, I know I'm I'm asking and I'm uh, asking a lot for people to, to even consider something like this, but I, that's where I fall on it. And um, it fits right in as, as I understand feedback loops. And um, the whole spiel about the history of philosophy and was really to tease out this this sense of of that we've lost we've lost our connections with um, our bodies and and with with nature because we've considered you know we've considered the mind as more important and uh, in a sense that sort of won out and then it's changing and you can see even in philosophy of today there's a lot of even as we we're studying intelligence and whatnot we're learning so much more. Well, I've gone on a little longer than I had planned, but um, I have possibly managed to make my old philosophy professor roll over in his grave, and I may have also grossed other people out. But um, I've said what I wanted to say, and I do appreciate uh, everyone who was listening.